Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bedside Murmurs podcast. My name is Divyanch, and along with Jade. Hi, guys. We'll be your host today for what's undoubtedly going to be an amazing episode. We're joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Frank Brennan. Dr. Brennan, thank you so much for joining us today on Bedside Murmurs. Good morning. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation. No worries. So just a bit about Dr. Brennan for our listeners. Dr. Brennan is a palliative care physician at Calvary Healthcare and St. George Hospital and a renal palliative care physician with the Renal Supportive Service at St. George and Sutherland Hospitals. Dr. Brennan has also been a past president of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Palliative Medicine and is a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Medicine at UNSW. Dr. Brennan also has been awarded Member of Order of Australia for his significant service to palliative medicine and to medical education. So it's absolutely an honour to have Dr. Brennan with us today. Thank you, Jane. Now, Dr. Brennan, I know you've given a lot of media interviews in the past, but have you ever been on a podcast like this one before? No, this is the first time. Wow. So a new experience. Just moving into our kind of questions today, then, I guess I want us to start off a bit generally about some of the myths and misconceptions that do exist about palliative care, unfortunately. I guess in my own kind of limited but really informative time in palliative care hospital placements, I found that there are multiple of these myths. And that's something that you touch on in your lectures to UNSW students as well. Would you be able to comment on some of these, and especially for some of our listeners, might not have had that much exposure to palliative care? Yeah, look, this is a really good question. I'm sure if I was sitting here as a cardiologist or a surgeon, you'd have a fair sense of what I'm doing or the role of my discipline. But with palliative care, there are several myths and misconceptions and can trouble people or even worry people. So I guess one of the myths is that palliative care is only for the dying. Yes, we do care for dying patients, but we're more than simply terminal care. Our involvement can be a lot earlier, even from the time of diagnosis for any life-limiting illness. And we're very happy to be involved in and out of the story as the trajectory of the illness unfolds. Another myth is that it's really not much medicine, whereas in fact, there's lots of medicine in palliative care. And we work as doctors, of course, with a multidisciplinary team and really to make sure that the medical aspects are just right. I guess the other myth is that using morphine or other medications excessively really to heavily sedate patients, well, no, no, our role is really to act in proportion. So where the level of pain or agitation lies, we'll try and match that with the analgesia medications or medications to try and settle agitation. A classic other myth is that palliative care is really only for cancer patients, isn't it? Well, no, as the introduction did show that palliative care more and more is involved in non-malignant diseases. So I'm very involved with renal patients, either on dialysis or not, and motor neurone disease patients. So there's just two examples of non-malignant palliative care. And certainly in this context, in the pandemic, we've got a non-malignant disease that's causing much death around the world and palliative care is involved in that. And I think definitely the fact that you mentioned about medicine as well, I think what something that struck me during my placements was the amazing kind of way in which you have to balance medications as well as a palliative care physician. Is that something that you find a lot of your patients also understand at all? 
Yeah, so certainly when I'm introduced to a patient for the very first time and a family, I'm aware that those myths uh, may well sit there and they may be very worried or even upset by meeting a palliative care doctor. So part of the story of the first encounter is just to calm everyone down and reassure them our role. And often I'll say the words, look, if there was one word to describe what I'm about is to get you comfortable. And you can start to see them relax more with that context of comfort, because often they've come to us already with difficult issues of pain or nausea, shortness of breath. Then in terms of the medications, absolutely, yes, we have to be quite careful with what we're doing because we may well be adding extra medications to something that's already there. And certainly when a patient is now deteriorating and not able to swallow, how can we possibly manage those symptoms? Really, it's using a little subcutaneous needle where we focus on a couple of major symptoms to try and settle the person. Absolutely. And just on that as well, I think for some of our more clinically based audience. Would you have any tips for how they can help if they're on a palliative care placement in addressing these myths or even if they're not on placement at that point? First of all, it's really good as a medical student to have a placement in palliative care to get a sense of what's unfolding there. I guess you're going to be witnessing some very meaningful conversations and times of anxiety or stress for the patients and their relatives. I think witnessing how communication is done is very good. And I remember, well, there was no palliative care when I was at medical school, but certainly as a junior doctor, I was mute when I first started in palliative care because I wasn't quite sure what to say or whether what I'd say would be disturbing or troubling to patients. So I did a lot of observing, really just sort of modelling myself, if you like, on the best of what I was seeing around me, what seemed to work well, what was gentle, what was kind, the role of silence, not worrying that simply filling every single second of time with your language, with your speech. I think it's very much a question of sitting back up more and, and witnessing and asking the patient how they are. And I think once you start as a medical student, how are you? Those questions, when people start to talk through those, even questions, what's important to you? Now, all of those questions are revelatory because it starts to get a much better sense of the patient and what's important to the patient, of course. Just launching off that, from a clinical perspective, a lot of patient stories can be really complex. In light of this, when you see a patient, how do you decide what is clinically relevant for you to focus on and what kind of questions do you ask? It's a really good question, Jay, when I'm first meeting a patient because I'm simultaneously conscious that they may be nervous meeting palliative care for the first time. So I'm going to be gentle and an introduction, as I've said before, then probably what I'll start with is how are you feeling physically? Oh, you've got pain. You've got shortness of breath. I think we can do something for that. Let's see what we can do. I'm interested to know what works or helps for you. So there you're starting to engage with the person with the physical issues that they're feeling, and that can be extremely difficult in what they're experiencing. But also it can be a revelation to them that doctors are with the skill of palliative care with our great interest, our forensic interest in symptoms, we can start to help them. As part of that, Jade, I'm also conscious that I'm also dealing with a person who's more than the physical. I'm dealing with someone who almost certainly through their illnesses had fears, great fears about what the future is going to hold, high hopes about cure, 
expectations, uh, worries about what's happening to their family. So I'm conscious of that. And bit by bit, I will start to bring those dimensions into play as well. I guess you could say palliative care is more than symptomatology. I mean, we could go into a patient and go through 15 separate symptoms, walk out and say, we've done a good job. Mm, I think, yes, we've done a fair job, but we haven't got to know that person and we haven't got to know the emotional, spiritual dimensions of what they're feeling. So at that point, once I'm more into that conversation or potentially in the next conversation, I will start to ask questions like, how do you feel beyond the physical? How is your spirit? Now, as soon as I use that word, I'm immediately moving beyond the physical so people can answer that question. And also, do you have fears? Do do you worry about things? Well, yes, doctor, I do worry. I, I worry a lot. And so understanding that aspect of the person is very pivotal and that can help. And indeed, it's perhaps not so much of two separate stories because we do know the role of the psychology and cognitive changes, particularly with pain and nausea, where people's pain may be exacerbated by fear and worry and concern. So bringing those two aspects together and also perhaps to you and your colleagues not being troubled by that not saying, well, I can't ever go to those sort of questions because that's the role of someone else. No, no, I think the role of medicine is broad and does need to be broad. And this is a good example here. Absolutely. And I think that is such an important aspect that you mentioned also in your lectures about how we can integrate that discussion about the physical and the spiritual. Just moving on to discussion about your career, could you just outline for our listeners how your careers kind of come to where it is at the moment and any really influences along the way that pushed you towards palliative care in general? Okay, well, it certainly wasn't any grand plan. It evolved over time. And I think also that might be a message to everyone, rather than thinking, look, as a third or fourth year medical student, I've got to have a grand plan. Well, yes, you may have a grand plan, but unexpected things happen. Remarkable things can occur as a medical student and as a junior doctor, where you witness something and you think, I really liked that. I thought that was really interesting. Or I really enjoyed being part of that story. Or I really admired how that doctor approached that story. And that may be a light bulb moment where people say, oh, well, actually, this is something I might consider. But certainly not to worry about having a grand plan. So, yes, look, I was a University of New South Wales medical student at St George. I then worked at Concord Hospital as a junior doctor. At the end of two or three years, People seemed to be doing one of two things. One was going on to specialise and the other was going off to England. And I thought, hmm, I'm sure the world is bigger than those two choices. And I'd met some South African doctors and they said, look, South Africa is a remarkable place to learn medicine very quickly because you've got such a large population over there. So with some wanderlust, I went over to South Africa, to Port Elizabeth, and worked there for two years and did a year of obstetrics and gynecology and a year of pediatrics and work with some remarkable people. Well, essentially it was third world medicine. It was extremely busy and very remarkable what I was seeing and doing. For instance, in the pediatrics, they had a malnutrition clinic trying to deal with a lot of issues of malnutrition and TB and TB meningitis among children. And and then, of course, the obstetric story in terms of the risks to women and babies in very difficult circumstances. 
I came back to Australia with a whole other thought in mind, and that was to do law. I'd been interested in law for some time. When I was in South Africa, I did some correspondence subjects. I didn't like them, but this was South African law, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be a South African lawyer. I'll come back to Australia and went back to my hometown, Canberra, and did the graduate law degree. Then I worked sort of a legal intern year in Melbourne. Then I had a most remarkable job working with Mary Gordon, who was the first woman appointed to the High Court of Australia. So I was one of her associates, just working closely with her, helping, basically assisting her with proofreading judgments and researching and doing things like that, which was brilliant. Then I was starting to miss medicine. So I started to do some general practice locums and also accident emergency work with the judge's permission and then realised, oh, this is something I'm really missing, seeing patients. So at one stage, I thought of being both a doctor and a lawyer. It didn't quite work out, and I ended up being a general practitioner at the Aboriginal Medical Service in Redford. And that's something, certainly, I would say to your audience to think about at some point in your career doing work within the Aboriginal Medical Services, because that's a remarkable experience where all your patients are Indigenous and the healthcare workers are Indigenous. And so that was a revelation to me in terms of what was unfolding for Indigenous. And not only that, but of course, the stolen generation story and several of my my co-workers were taken as children from their parents. So hearing that all firsthand and being a doctor in that situation was quite remarkable. At that stage, I started to hear about palliative care and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Oh, I think I might do that. And that was an echo from childhood experience. When I was 13 years old, my brother Tom, who was aged 11, died of osteogenic sarcoma. So he, from diagnosis to death, was only three years. Look, it had the most profound effect on me, my sister, my parents, of course, through that period. And even at 13-year-old, I was starting to think, "Mm, I wonder, knowing that Tom was going to die, what role would a doctor have? In my naivety, thinking doctors only cured people. So how does doctors deport themselves when someone is seriously ill and dying? So I started to think about that as a teenager and decided to do medicine. And then many years later, of course, started to hear about this discipline called palliative care. And I thought, hmm, now that's really interesting because there are doctors involved in that. So I started to work there, then went on to do actually training, then spent a year in Ireland, which was wonderful talk about a land of storytellers and great story to sit with patients in Ireland and hear their stories and it was wonderful and also their sense of death and dying and the wake and all the spirituality was very strong there then I came back and I've been in Sydney since working well within cancer of course the traditional palliative care motor neurone disease in the last couple of years with kidney patients so a bit of a circuitous route no direct line no okay well I'm going to do this at 17 and this is what I'm going to do forever no it's more just the sense of just picking up opportunities and following my curiosity I think I think that's an amazing point a lot of medical students might be thinking oh I need to have an idea of where to go but I think a lot of the time serendipity and being able to recognize that opportunity and follow your passion is an amazing kind of thing to do as well. I just wanted to touch on the point that you worked overseas for a while in South Africa and Ireland. And were there kind of differences, major differences in healthcare systems compared to Australia that really struck you during this? Yeah, certainly South Africa. I mean, South Africa at that stage was in a unique situation because the apartheid regime, so everything was based on the color of your skin. So a very, very peculiar way that you'd have literally white hospitals and non-white hospitals. So that was very 
well, abhorrent, really, highly racist, what was unfolding there. But yes, I guess it gave me a sense of what third world, because South Africa was a mixture of first and third world, third world medicine was like, which was very demanding, but fascinating, lots of needs for skills, and certainly in the obstetrics and paediatrics field, just to keep people alive through childbirth and early infancy. So that's a very powerful sense of the role of medicine and and role of medicine as leadership, really, in terms of what we're able to do. The story there in Ireland, well, Ireland was more familiar in the sense that it had a health system which was similar to ours. I mean, they had a public system and they also had a private system as well. Most people were sort of going through the public system like in Australia, a relatively small population, the population of Sydney for the whole country. So there was a big focus on trying to do as best they can in terms of having the major cities with major hospitals and things. And also they had a major children's hospital in Dublin. So it was sort of a familiar environment and partly looking, I mean, looking at their neighbour in England with the NHS and partly doing their own way. Also, another thing that I just wanted to touch on briefly is that you mentioned, you know, your time working in law and you have quite fond memories of that. But do you think that experience made you quote unquote, a better doctor, would you say? Or did that inform your medical practice as well? It's it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because they're very different disciplines. But I would say that there's perhaps a couple of interfaces, if you like. I guess what law did is certainly taught me to write well and also to think well, to think logically through an issue and also to see the various aspects of it. It's not maybe just one answer. There may be two or three different answers that we have to think about and balance together. So law taught me that. Law also, I suppose, taught me not directly, but perhaps indirectly, sort of an ethical approach to uh, the response, because the law tries to stay very in synchronous with what medicine and ethics are saying, particularly in medical law. Also, I guess, and again, by chance, Law allowed me to start to think more deeply about certain things. For instance, looking at things like informed consent and dialysis. So I suppose it's been useful to have that background. Yeah, I think that intersection between law, ethics and medicine is really interesting. Another couple of areas that you've really worked in is renal palliative care and motor neurone disease. Would you have to share with us uh, your experiences in this? What kind of drew you to those areas and how did you come to occupy those positions? Yeah, thank you, Jay. Well, again, not quite accident. I didn't sort of stumble over in the street and suddenly I'm doing something different. But what happened was two stories, really. The motor neurone disease story, I happened to be as a palliative care trainee at Calvary Hospital, and there was a palliative care doctor very interested in neurology and palliative care. And I think maybe as a medical student, I may have met one patient with motor neurone disease, but I didn't really know very much about it at all. And I certainly recognised it was different to cancer because approaching motor neurone disease patients with sort of a cancer mindset, I know it's a different disease. It is life-limiting, so it's appropriate for us to be involved. So I learned a lot there and I learned a huge amount from one of the motor neurone disease nurses. So what happened is that particular doctor left. She asked, would I be interested to become part of that clinic? And I did. And so, so there was a lot of reading, but also a lot of asking patients questions, getting to know those patients over and over again, one by one, getting a sense of what was needed for those patients and being very curious 
about what, what was unfolding for them, but also talking to colleagues and saying, like, this is an issue, what can I do? And also working with a small multidisciplinary team. The renal work was a little bit like that too, where the professor of nephrology at uh, the head of department of nephrology at St. George Hospital, Mark Brown, came to us one day and said, look, I've got an issue here. Now, this is probably one of the most talented specialists I've ever met and known. And I thought, well, if Mark Brown is coming to us, this is fascinating. What are the issues? And he spoke about the number of elderly, frail patients who probably ought not to be on dialysis, who didn't do so well, their symptomatology, the quality of their dying, and said, look, you in palliative care have those skills. Would you like to start to work with us? And I said, yes, I'd be very happy to do that. So that started with this really wonderful alliance between the two disciplines as we started to get to know each other and understand each other better and started to work at what palliative care could do. So again, reading as much as I could, speaking to colleagues here and overseas, and then starting to learn a lot from our patients and also being professionally humble. I think Mark Brown showed professional humility by coming to us and saying, we have an issue. And also I needed to feel that because there were a lot of things I didn't know and didn't understand. And so working again with the team and trying my best, I guess that was the thing. And bit by bit, that area has grown and grown, certainly within New South Wales and around Australia. So you as medical students may well be working in hospitals where there are so-called renal supportive care clinics. I think that's an amazing way to lead into our next topic area about teamwork as well. In our last podcast, our guest, Emeritus Professor Les White AM, stated very tellingly that the age of the heroic individual is over. And there is a lot of focus on teamwork in hospitals, in our medical training curriculum, and that's incredibly, incredibly important, specifically considering palliative care. There's also a particular role for some experts who might not be as involved in some of the other disciplines. Could you give our listeners some insights into their roles and how you'd interact with them? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, I think. Look, certainly as a medical student, you're being trained as doctors and you're seeing a lot of the role of doctors and how doctors support themselves and their perspectives, which is really important as you become a doctor. But I'd also just look around you and just see who else is that doctor working with? Is that doctor working completely alone or is that doctor working with the team? And you're quite right. There's more and more emphasis on teamwork. It's interesting coming into palliative care because from the very beginning, there was a sense that this has to be a teamwork. No one person can cover every aspect of the work or the needs of our patients. So yes, the nature of palliative care has that. So you work constantly surrounded by a team. They would include nurses who are trained in palliative care, social workers who have a particular skill set in terms of community supports for the person, the whole thing of if someone's going to come to a nursing home, those dynamics and also the psychological dimension. Pastoral care is interesting. Pastoral care used to be historically all based on a religious faith. You'd have a, a Catholic pastor and an Anglican pastor. But in the modern era, when we have so many religions and people without a religion, pastoral care is not tied to a particular faith. Pastoral care workers work with everyone. They're remarkable Physiotherapists, of course, people say, "Mm, why would physiotherapists be involved in palliative care because people are close to dying? Well, as we've said at the beginning, it's not just the dying. And also physiotherapists can be fantastic in terms of getting someone who's mostly bed bound up, maybe standing and walking and gaining more independence, plus, you know, trying to do that. Occupational therapists, of course, in terms of equipment, very important. Dietitians, speech pathologists, motor neurone disease, people start to have changes in their speech and their swallowing. So all of that, a big team. 
so yes, we rely on each other. And I think it's very important as doctors having the sense and also starting to look across to other disciplines that you may model yourselves on their communication skills. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, in medical school, you're looking very much at the doctors, how they're communicating. But it potentially may be a wonderful communicator that you see is a social worker or a physiotherapist. And you think, I really liked the way they spoke and how they sat with that patient and what they did. So not to be fearful or not to be troubled at all about gaining those insight from other disciplines. I think that's that idea of lifelong learning in medicine. I think also in any team, as you've just touched on, there's a lot of roles and a huge variety of roles with often different views and different priorities for the patient's care. When you're leading a team, how do you balance all of that to get a very strategic and cohesive outcome for the patient? Uh, The first thing is to listen. Listen to everyone in that team, because the worst thing is to not listen, to be dismissive in any way. You have to be highly respectful for all your colleagues and what's unfolding. So listening very carefully, having an open mind, because, of course, doctors can have one view. Yes, that is your medical view, but is there any other aspect that we need to think about here? And I think hearing other members of the team is very good. So I regularly say, what do you think? Or ask that question. What's your perspective? Is there an issue here that perhaps we're not seeing? And that can be very, very helpful. So in the hospice at Calvary, once a week, we have a judiciary meeting where all of our colleagues around the table go through each patient and each person is asked to speak. So it gives everyone a voice. If there's an issue or where there's a discrepancy, trying to work out a compromise, trying to work out some way, a middle way, if you like, through things, it's very, very rare that there's open conflict. If that is, then my role is to say, look, that we need to work as a team. We can't be in conflict. This is not the right thing to do. I understand your views, but let's just settle here and calmly work through something. Our ultimate aim, of course, is the patient's best interest, and that's not going to be uh, productive. But that's pretty rare, I'd have to say. Yeah, hearing what everyone says so everyone realises they're being heard and then working to some sort of negotiated compromise. It may be that everyone's entirely happy with the decision and there's no worries, and usually that's the case. I think that's something our listeners can really, really learn from, the importance of also listening all the time. You also work in a variety of different teams. Does your approach to teamwork vary based on the role in that team or is it more or less uniform? I think it's mostly uniform. I think that there's sort of a coherent sense of teamwork, those basic principles of you're in a team, so you're together in this boat, so let's work together. That's important. Listening to each other, giving each other respect, being willing to sort of shift your view. I think that's really important, particularly if it's not going to be of harm to anyone. So why can't you? And I guess also within palliative care, there's a strong ethos of creativity. Okay, this person now wants to go home. Now, in a hospital, they may say, well, you can't go home. It's not possible for you to get the care. Okay, well, possibly we could do this if we started to rapidly prepare that, get a hospital bed in, organise community palliative care, do all sorts of different things. I want to see my cat. I want to see my dog. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, bring the dog in. Bring the cat in. What about my grandchildren? Yes, we'd love to see your grandchildren. 
Now, all of what I've just said is predicated on a non-pandemic environment because the pandemic environment has meant that there's been strong limitations on visitors, but normally that's the case. So actually bringing in children is a good example because I'm curious to know what the children are thinking at home. Children have high imaginations and they may be thinking lots of different things. So I will say, look, I'd like to meet the children. I'd like to talk with them, bring them in. But why would you do that, doctor? Well, they are your children and they may be thinking things and I think that this might help them now and later. So that's another interesting work usually with a social worker to see and having a conversation with a six-year-old versus a 16-year-old is completely different. So learning a lot from my social work colleagues and how to express myself, the nature of plain language, how to sit with a six-year-old that might be going for a walk or sitting doing crayons and drawings versus a 16-year-old. So that's an example where good teamwork can work extremely well to sit with children. Yeah, 100%. That's a terrifying thought for me as a medical student to sit with a six-year-old in a palliative care setting. Just thinking about that kind of community and family-based model of care. We spent 12 years in an outreach service to Port Macquarie. I'm actually I'm studying and living in Port Macquarie at the moment, so rural health is a real interest to me. I was wondering what drew you to the regions and what made you stay there for 12 years? Thank you, Jade. It's lovely to be answering the question from someone from Port Macquarie, the very place I came and, and visited all those years. So again, what had happened was that there was a recognition some years ago that there was issues in terms of deficit of specialists in rural remote Australia. So the Commonwealth, in response to that, started to fund metropolitan hospitals for specialists to fly in every so often, maybe every week, every month, every couple of months to these areas to assist in any way they can or could. So I put my hand up and I said, look, I'd love to do this. So at one stage, I was going monthly to Port Macquarie and monthly to Maruya on the south coast of New South Wales, two very different places, both on the coast and very different communities. So my time there in Port Macquarie, there was already a group of palliative care nurses there, but they didn't have a palliative care specialist. So my role was to come support those nurses, do education for the general practitioners, and we'd have a breakfast education session every time I came. Then also to see patients that were of issue, there were concerns for those patients, and that could be within the community, so visiting people in their own home at Port Macquarie Base Hospital. And then when War Hope Hospice started, that's a remarkable local story, of course, the commencement of War Hope Hospice, a beautiful eight-bed centre there. I started to go over there as well. And then finally, I was able to pass the baton really onto a local palliative care specialist. So yes, that was wonderful to get to know people over time, to get a sense of what was important for people. Also the pace of things, and also particularly then encouraging and working with local general practitioners who I got to know as well, because palliative care is one part of multiple different tasks they had. So supporting them in any way I could, and just being observant of them. And over a 12-year period, of course, seeing career changes. One GP decided that he'd really like to work within nursing homes. So he does that. Sam Bowie, you probably know him. And then others who are doing various things and encouraging them. And then one of the great things, I guess, is medicine is being able to talk with each other about cases. And I suppose it's storytelling really, isn't it? And allowing those stories to unfold and hear and then reflect back on. Remember that patient I remember you had a couple of years ago. Remember how that unfolded. I remember what you said to that family, how powerful that was. As a general practitioner, you've known them for many years. So all of those aspects of things were very good. 
I touched on a lot of differences there um, with regional practice. I was wondering whether any particular challenges that you found during your time working in the regions? Well, certainly I needed to be careful that what I was saying or, you know, I would recommend the following things. They'd say, well, okay, that's fine for Sydney, but it's not really practical here. So really I started to listen to the locals and say, well, what is practical? What is possible? Rather than coming in saying, oh, you know, I've got all the answers. Well, I have some answers, but it's the local people who are going to have a sense of the reality. So getting a sense of that in terms of, oh, everything from investigations, interventions, what medicines are available, not available, what's possible to be done at home or not at home. So interestingly, I started to hear about this group of, I think they were called the New South Wales Rural and Remote Palliative Care Nurses Association. Remarkable group, I'd have to say, because some of these nurses are working in isolation in small country towns without a specialist. So what they were doing was amazing, really, the work they were doing, the kindness they were showing to patients, the fact that people did know their type of work. So if a nurse was highly involved in caring for a person in another town, when she get back, someone would have left some meals for her or volunteered to do her ironing or helping in some way. I mean, this is the nature of country towns. That was very fascinating, of course, and people knowing each other well through their lives and now at the time of their deaths. I think, yeah, that sense of community is amazing. I really hope that I get the opportunity to work in the regions at some point in the future. Also, you touched on earlier about COVID-19 and how that's impacted your practice and I think palliative care in general. Would you be able to kind of give us a bit of an insight into how that's impacted your practice, the way you manage patients? There's probably a couple of things from my practice, but I will talk about how it's affected palliative care. Really, all our clinics had to come onto telephone. So telehealth was become a big part of things and trying to have difficult conversations over the phone can be quite a challenge. Also, just in terms of the nature of palliative care, the whole process of being literally physically close to a person who is seriously ill and dying, holding their hand, looking them in the eye, talking to them, having all the family around a bedside, each aspect of that was changed hugely by the pandemic. PPEs, restriction of visitors, care given by nurses realising that they can't be in a room too long, particularly with a COVID-positive patient. The fact that a person may potentially die without a relative there and only the nurses there. And then the non-COVID population, of course, the population of people who are dying of pancreatic cancer or other cancers. And then you're saying, well, we can only, in the weeks leading up to your death, potentially have one visitor. And then when you're dying, we can have more visitors. So that's a really tough aspect of things. And families being distressed naturally by that process, trying to work out whether there was other electronic ways of communicating. And then, of course, the funeral. Okay, the funeral might be extremely limited. It might be five people, 10 people. So I do worry a lot about the reflection of families through this time of the death of their father or their mother their brother, their sister, their children, in their bereavement and the fact that thing was was very constricted versus liberated. And that's, I guess, one of the ethos is palliative care is just liberate all this, just see what is possible. Let's talk about what's important to you. You want 
your family with you. Well, let's have the family with you. You want to be at home. Well, let's see if we can set things up with community palliative care service at home. You want to be able to go down to the beach. You want to go and do these things. Let's see if we can do all those things. Also, I've been in contact with my colleagues overseas who've been in significantly affected places, Cape Town in South Africa, Mumbai and India. And oh, well, I mean, the stories there, what they've gone through, what they've seen, their fears, of course, in terms of the virus itself has been quite remarkable. And thinking about the impact of COVID-19 on patients and their families and isolation, thinking about what you said before about palliative care being more than just symptomatology. You wrote a paper in 2017 where you said that symptoms may be the beginning, but never the end of the exploration in the same way that the physical may be the beginning, but is never the end of the person. So we've already talked about how there's a massive emotional dimension to the aspects of care that you provide. As a clinician, how do you manage these emotional aspects in your personal life and find balance in your practice? It's a lovely question. Yes, it is very interesting. And I think that very question sits below the surface for all of us. And I think uh, part of the answer there, Jade, is perhaps the fact that we can do something, that we can respond to that. I sort of compare it if I was sitting with patients over and over again, where I simply sat and observed, it'd be like looking at the sun. It'd be very hard to do that. But in fact, what's happening, of course, is I'm hopefully able to contribute to dealing with pain, nausea, dealing with distress, listening to what is happening for a suffering patient. So being highly involved, certainly professional satisfaction does come with that, and that certainly can help. But I do know that the question you're asking is perfectly valid, because no human being can constantly be doing this work without some other way of venting that or describing that. So I do a couple of things. One thing that we do do every Thursday morning for an hour is we have a closed door meeting with the doctors and medical students are there where we talk about how the week's been. Not so much I saw a malignant hypercalcemia, what I did. Well, yes, that's very interesting. But I'm more interested to know for the senior and junior doctors, how did you feel about it all? How are you going? Was that hard? I cried. Is that right professionally to have cried? All of those different aspects of things. So having a way of expressing ourselves. And I think certainly, well, for senior and junior doctors, it's a very healthy way of recognising what robots that we're just blindly going on and on and on. We need to be very conscious of that. Also having a life outside of medicine. I'm very conscious as medical students, most of your life is studying. So trying to find time outside of medicine is hard, but I certainly encourage it. So any aspect of your life that you enjoy outside of medicine, cultivate that, nurture it. Now, it may be set aside for a while, but just come back to it. Whether it's art or music or writing or athletics or whatever it is, you keep going with that because that will nurture your soul, your spirit. And that's really important not to fall for this thing. Well, I'm a medical student, therefore I can be only a medical student. Well, yes, you're a medical student, but you're also a human being and you have your own sense of things. And that's very important, isn't it? So having those two things, being able to ventilate at some point and also having a life outside of medicine. Yeah, I think balance is just so, so important. There's also been a major shift in palliative care during your career. I mean, you said that when I was at medical school, there was no teaching in palliative care at all. And cut to the present day where you've been a past president of the ANZ Society of Palliative Medicine. What would you say would have been the drivers of this change? 
I think partly pioneers. It did require at the beginning where people were sort of just trying to feel their way into something that was completely new and even didn't have a name. So people said, why as a doctor would you be involved in care of the dying? Oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. Surely doctors are there to cure. Well, yes, we can, we're possible. But I think it was a recognition that we're all mortal and we're dealing as doctors with mortal creatures. So if a dying patient comes and we have no answer to this, then that's not going to be particularly helpful for the patient or the family. So a group of pioneers around the world started to think about this. Okay, what can be done? Certainly in terms of one of the big features at that stage was inadequate cancer pain management. How do we deal with this better? And then starting to look at what would be not only in cancer, but non-malignant. There were pivotal moments, if you like. One of the big moments was when there was a debate about whether palliative care should be involved in non-cancer was the arrival of the shocking HIV AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa. Suddenly you had a non-malignant disease that was killing huge numbers of people and everyone was saying palliative care could be involved in palliative care. So there's very few of us and we don't really have the structure. So it was really a big rallying call for my colleagues in sub-Saharan Africa in terms of palliative care for the non-malignant. And it really took away that debate. The other thing was, I suppose, recognising that palliative care could also be not just an institution, but community-based, so where people wanted it to be. So we sort of really followed, I guess, the wishes of patients where people say, look, I love this hospital, but I really want to be at home. So how can this be? Then another turning point was, I'd say, a greater sophistication in terms of the medical and therapeutic aspects. Certainly our array of medicines now is hugely different to beginnings where it may be more panadol and morphine. Now we've got lots and lots of different choices and different ways and our understanding of the pathophysiology of nausea, cough, pruritus, shortness of breath, etc., is more sophisticated. So we have a better sense of what we're doing. I think also in tandem with that, of course, was the recognition of what we've just been speaking about, the emotional and psychological dimensions of what we're doing, and that any doctor can venture into this area, but certainly palliative care, as I've just said, is more than symptomatology. So they would have some of the, the major moments. Oh, the other thing which is really interesting is the recognition within this area that we were dealing with things that were very hard to express. How to talk about suffering, how to talk about grief and bereavement. So there was a conscious sense that maybe in palliative care, we need to be very conscious about art, music, literature, because many great pieces continue to be written, reflect on that. And recognising, ah, there's something in that that's expressing the inexpressible. When I was in Ireland, there was one of the palliative care physicians who taught herself basically to be a documentary filmmaker. And she did a series of beautiful documentaries on death and dying in Ireland, the traditional ways, the bereavement, illness, and they were beautiful. And she would show these in palliative care conferences and people were stunned because this was something that was in our area, but expressed in such a beautiful way. So I think that that's the interface of medicine and humanities became quite a strong tradition now. And one of the things I reached for, I'd started to write some stories down from my work, realising I needed to process and think about this. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. On that note as well, are there any further changes that you would like to see in the field going forward? I think an openness to everything, including the non-malignant. So more and more of my colleagues starting to show an interest in, okay, well, I'd probably 
could start to think of sitting with the cardiologists or respiratory physicians and working with them, not being daunted by that because you bring a whole set of principles and skills to that. I think also the whole thing about rural and remote communities, country areas, about where skills come, how to disseminate those skills, what is possible, and inequities even within this country, in terms of access to palliative care for adults and children. Internationally, oh my goodness me, one of the biggest stories in this area is many, many countries have extremely tight opioid laws. So the actual access to opioids for medical purposes is very, very restricted. Essentially, no palliative care and almost no morphine. So there's lots of challenges. Yeah, definitely a lot to think about for the future in this specialty. It's about time for us to wrap up now. I was just wondering if there were any major takeaway messages that you'd like to tell medical students. Well, look, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to you and hopefully it's been interesting. I think one of the takeaway messages is to work hard, of course, and to hopefully enjoy your time as a student, not to feel that you have to be making absolute plans from the beginning. I think that's important to be kind to yourselves, to be gentle with yourselves, because there can be a perfectionism that comes within medicine, that we have to be highly successful in everything we do, to realise that we're human beings working in the most human of enterprises. I think that that's an important aspect as well, to be kind to our patients and their families, to have a sense of that, that yes, there is mechanical things, practical things we need to do, but also to be kind to them. And let perhaps the sense of wisdom and experience which will come with time guide you. I think those are amazing, amazing messages. And once again, thank you so much, Dr. Brennan, for joining us today. Jane and I have had a very enlightening time listening to you speak. That's it for today's episode of Bedside Murmurs. Remember to tune in next time and you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts and a variety of other platforms. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye.